Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Clean Up on Aisle 22 by Ian Gordon. With thanks to our producers, Ashley Lindsay, C.S. Pace, Robert Daniel Picard, Elia Reese, and Wes Sale. Tuesday. Not quite the beginning of the week, not quite the middle. An odd day, by all accounts. With Monday, you've got an excuse to be irritable, as it bluntly serves to remind you that you've got a long week ahead, provided you work a typical nine-to-five week, that is. As for Wednesday, well, it's the middle of the week, the hump day, and once you're over that, you're on easy street. Thursday is Friday's shadow, and Friday itself, Friday is the light at the end of the tunnel. But Tuesday, it creeps up on you. You don't expect it. The weirdness it contains is often overlooked, dismissed out of hand. And so, naturally, the events that changed my life had to belong to a Tuesday. I should have known. But as I said, it's a creeper. You just don't expect it. My name is Christopher Myers. I was, up until very recently, for reasons I'll shortly be relating, a grocery associate for ADCO PLC based at their superstore in Burton-on-Trent. In brief, my position saw me tending to stock replenishment throughout the store, from fresh fruit and vegetables to tin goods and cereals, you name it. I was a nine-to-five guy, Monday to Friday, the envy of many. After two years working nights, eleven to seven in the morning, I'd earned my stripes, as it were, and, finally, following a much-belated request to work the day shift, I'd been offered the holy grail of retail working hours. Now, I want to preface the subsequent account by saying that things had been a little off at work for several weeks. There had been an increase in product returns due to a number of tainted foodstuffs, meats, fish, and dairy products, to name but a few. Several cases of alleged food poisoning were lodged with the local authority, which, in conjunction with the ensuing environmental health investigation, didn't do much for ADCO's public image. A couple of my colleagues had taken ill, too, one of whom, a baker, Bradley Smith, had apparently disappeared off the face of the earth. He'd called in the first day, complaining of stomachache, attributing it to, and I quote, dodgy turkey mints. When he failed to call in the second day, disciplinary action was taken. Trust Adco to discipline the sick. But despite these peculiarities, I was all right. I kept my head down, busied myself, and, as was my prerogative, continued to avoid awkward encounters with disgruntled, and in this case, poorly customers. And then it was Tuesday, a blustery, unpleasant day. Arriving at the store just before nine, I entered the building via the south entrance, and proceeded along the lengthy corridor towards the staff locker room. I dropped some items off, locked them up, and continued in the direction of the store proper. The moment I stepped out into the open, I heard over the store's speaker system, Clean Up on Aisle 22. It was Rod Picard, the elderly Adco greeter, the face and voice of the store. This announcement, in plain English, was of course an instruction, and, presumably, the burly, if somewhat reserved Nick Lindsay, head of the faithful Adco cleaning squad, would soon be shuffling in the direction of the incident, on the double. I paid little heed to the announcement— but for some reason unknown to me, the word stuck in my mind, and, quite unconsciously, I found myself sauntering along in the direction of aisle 22. 
The Burton-on-Trent store is huge. It covers an area the size of a football pitch, they say, with a café and clothing department occupying the south portion, and thirty evenly spaced aisles dominating the rest. A central aisle runs from north to south, dividing the others into two sections, aisles east and west. It was as my stroll intersected this central thoroughfare, between aisles nine and ten, that Lindsay passed me, bounding forward with a young apprentice at his heels, their garish green uniforms an affront to nature. A third cleaner, another youngster, followed at their rear, pushing a mop and bucket on wheels. Ahead of me, in the direction of aisle twenty-two, I noticed a bit of commotion. It appeared to me that the west portion of the aisle had been cordoned off. Several customers were gathered in a small group in the central aisle, each of them eager to get a glimpse of whatever it was that had been concealed. Lindsay and his apprentices approached the cordon, which appeared to be protected by an unfamiliar security guard. I neared aisle twenty-two, and watched as Lindsay, and Lindsay alone, was permitted to pass through the cordon. The guard pulled back a layer of black tarpaulin, and the hulking cleaning manager promptly disappeared within, leaving his underlings and the mop and bucket behind. A sort of canvas vestibule lay on the other side of the tarpaulin, obscuring the aisle proper. The guard, meanwhile, encouraged the curious customers to disperse, which they did, reluctantly, several of them shaking their heads in frustration as they returned to the comparatively mundane task of grocery shopping. I glanced at my watch. It was 9.03 a.m. On a typical day, by 9.03, I'd be found in the shadowy warehouse, engaged in the act of sourcing an appropriate-looking cage trolley, from which to restock bags of flour or cartons of custard for there was something unsettling about this whole aisle-cordon business, and so I decided to continue my reconnaissance, safe in the knowledge that my position as a grocery associate justified my curiosity. I mean, as a fully-fledged member of staff, who often worked aisle twenty-two, I had the right to snoop about a bit, didn't I? I was merely intrigued, just like those customers had been. Nothing wrong with that, right? Adequately reassured by my misplaced sense of self and status, I approached the no-nonsense security guard manning the cordon, and tipped my head in his direction. He wasn't having any of it, and so I passed aisle twenty-two west, the home of herbs, spices, and pickled goods, and casually entered aisle twenty-three, the home of mixers, juices, and bottled water, hoping to eavesdrop a little. On the other side of the lofty shelving I heard some muted voices, Lindsay once or twice, a strange low voice that I didn't recognise, and, to my surprise, the excitable tones of the store's general manager, James Reese. What the trio were discussing I hadn't the foggiest, but it was immediately clear to me that Lindsay hadn't been called to the scene to tend to your average spillage. Another straight-faced security guard appeared at the opposite end of aisle 23 West. Clearly both ends of aisle 22 West had been cordoned off, and these stocky chaps were keeping a watchful eye on those in the vicinity, and not just the customers. In a pathetic attempt to look inconspicuous, I instantly began repositioning the black currant cordial bottles in front of me, bringing items at the back to the front. But this second guard, a behemoth of a character sporting a bald head and obligatory goatee, continued to eyeball me, and so I was forced to retreat. Off I plodded, along aisle twenty-three east end, into the depths of the warehouse, and once there, I decided to consult a colleague of mine. Nigel Pace, the forklift driver. Pace was something of a know-it-all. He took great pride in spreading gossip, 
particularly gossip relating to his colleagues at Hadco, I myself having been a target of his elaborate anecdotes on more than one occasion. I spotted him at the far end of the warehouse, by the freezers in the northwest corner. He was clutching a clipboard in one hand, and a partially peeled, half-eaten pea-green banana in the other. He looked up as I approached, and nodded nonchalantly. "'How's it going?' he offered, taking a bite of the immature fruit. "'Not bad,' I said. His gaze returned to the clipboard. "'What's the deal on aisle twenty-two? I asked. "'Aisle twenty-two? he returned. "'Yeah, it's cordoned off.' "'Oh, that,' he said, and took another mouthful of banana. It was clear that Pace hadn't been fed all the facts concerning R-22. If he had been, the details would have been spilling out of him. "'Well?' I pressed. "'Just a spillage. A jar of pickles or something. That warrants a cordon, does it?' "'Apparently,' said Pace, chomping down the last of the fruit, tossing the skin aside. "'Talk to Jones on fish. He'll sort you out.' Certainly, Pace was in a strange humour, and so I took his advice and proceeded in the direction of the fish counter. Unlike Pace, Frank Jones was a quiet lad, generally serious, and not one to neglect his duties. He was still dressing the counter when I approached him, his hands pink and oily. "'Hey, Jones,' I said. "'Oh, hey,' he returned, but both his gaze and attention remained on the cod and salmon fillets he was in the act of positioning on the ice. Pace says you know something about this cordon business on aisle twenty-two. Yeah, someone dropped a jar of pickles, he said. That's it? I asked. Pretty much. Jones turned to face me, and wiped his fish-gut hands on the front of his apron before continuing. It was one of those big jars, you know, those gallon-sized efforts. Some woman dropped it, pickles everywhere. You can smell the vinegar from here. All I could smell, standing there by the fish-counter— was, well, fish. For there had indeed been a strong smell of vinegar near Isle 22 West. I just hadn't consciously acknowledged it at the time. But why the cordon? I asked, eyeballing Jones inquisitively. The woman, of course, Jones answered casually. What about the woman? I quizzed. She slipped and hit her head. Out cold, apparently. I shrugged my shoulders. Still doesn't explain the cordon, or the guards. Jones shrugged his shoulders. Beats me, man. And that was the end of our exchange. Like Pace, he seemed off somehow, uncharacteristically aloof. I decided it was high time to return to the scene of the crime, but I wanted to be discreet about it, and so, back to the warehouse I went, to find myself a cage trolley filled to the brim with mixers and juices, the perfect excuse to revisit aisle twenty-three. Back on the job, or at least pretending to be back on the job, I crossed the store in the direction of aisle 23, the cage trolley serving as cumbersome metal camouflage. I positioned myself diagonally opposite aisle 22 west, ensuring that, through the numerous bottles and cartons stacked upon the trolley, I could clearly and covertly observe the comings and goings of those entering and departing the aisle. The guard stationed there eyeballed me initially, but, much to my relief, was thereafter distracted by the dozens of shoppers who, in their ostensibly desperate need of herbs, spices, and pickled goods, pestered the poor bugger with demands. At approximately nine-thirty, Lindsay, the cleaning manager, and yet another unfamiliar guard, emerged from aisle twenty-two, escorting a young and somewhat dishevelled woman. The lady, some twenty years of age, held her hand to a face entirely drained of colour. But it wasn't the grey complexion that had me perplexed. 
It was the unusual statement she mumbled over and over again, a statement hushed by the guard, and in part repeated by Lindsay, who, too, seemed a little paler than he ought to. It looked at me, spoke to me, she babbled like a broken record. Looked at her, spoke to her, followed Lindsay, his eyes glazed and unseeing. Then I realised that the guard was escorting both the woman and Lindsay from aisle twenty-two, and off they went in a sort of unchoreographed and clumsy procession along the central aisle, in the direction of the control room. Whatever it was the pair had been babbling about, I wasn't about to find out from them. I had to get closer, had to find a way on to that aisle. And then it came to me. My ticket to aisle 22 West was hanging from a coat hook in the staff locker room. Feeling a little conspicuous, I took it upon myself to spend a few minutes refilling shelves up and down aisle 23. The last thing I needed was a dressing down from Al Peters, my overzealous manager. Having unburdened the cage of approximately five percent of its stock, I returned the trolley to an empty bay in the warehouse, and determined to visit the staff locker-room. Much to my chagrin, as I entered the locker-room, I bumped into Morris Turner, a fellow and painfully enthusiastic grocery associate, who was eager to get to it, as it were, and was hoping to buddy up with me for the remainder of the day. Humouring him, I informed Turner that I'd be delighted to buddy up, and that he should proceed to the warehouse, where I would accompany him in no less than fifteen minutes, after attending to business in the privacy of a toilet cubicle. Turner smirked, nodded in agreement, and shuffled off, which pleased me no end. Stepping into the locker-room proper, I spied my prize, hanging from a coat-hook next to Locker 57, an ADCO security guard's uniform, comprising a black sweater complete with epaulettes, and an unnecessary pair of sunglasses. I was overwhelmingly compelled to advance my foray into espionage, and so, grasping the opportunity by the horns, I donned the sweater and the sunglasses, and took a moment to assess the spook in the mirror. Myers, Christopher Myers, was in the house, and it was time to see what all the bother was about on aisle twenty-two. Of course, my pathetic plan had to actually work, and miraculously, it did. I strolled out of the locker-room, bold as brass, head in the air, through the canteen, along the winding corridors, and back out onto the shop floor. Not a soul gave me even so much as a cursory glance, such was the general atmosphere at Adco. As I calmly crossed the store in the direction of that fateful scene, I carefully considered my next move. Would I simply approach those burly watchmen and demand access to the aisle, or would a more convoluted course of action suffice, i.e., attempt to convince one of the guards that I had been sent to relieve them? Given that my knowledge of what it was that had occurred on the other side of that black tarpaulin amounted to nil, I figured either approach would be worth a shot. Let's be honest here, I was all but certain my efforts would fail. But, me being me, with a sense of confidence summoned from some inexplicable reserve within me, my curiosity had reached its zenith. I simply had to know what was going on back there. Instead of approaching the aisle via the central thoroughfare, I decided to try my luck with the guard at the west end, the end facing the towers of multi-pack crisps. And luck, it would seem, was on my side. As my eyes fell upon the sheet of tarpaulin, a sheet haphazardly suspended from the shelving either side of the aisle, I was overjoyed to observe that security guard number two was no longer standing watch. 
It was too perfect, too convenient, but, regardless, I wanted to take advantage of the situation. And so, with balls of steel, I marched on up to that mysterious cordon, and drew back the outer layer. Crossing the threshold, I let the outer layer fall behind me, and found myself standing in another improvised vestibule, exactly like its counterpart at the opposite end of the aisle, with a thinner, lighter layer of tarpaulin between me and the aisle proper. And then a curious feeling came over me. Adrenaline had brought me this far, me, the grocery associate, in a security guard sweater, and I hadn't really stopped to think about what it was I might be about to witness. The vestibule was strangely quiet, and I found myself removing the sunglasses in an attempt to listen more closely to what was happening beyond the final veil of secrecy. <laughs> what a preposterous notion! Suddenly I became uncomfortably conscious of my racing heart. It was going like the clappers, and I felt a little nauseous. And it was in that moment of discomfort that Finally, the overwhelming smell of vinegar pervaded my nostrils. So strong was the whiff that my uncovered eyes began to water, and I winced involuntarily. Holding back a splutter, I crept toward the inner layer of tarpaulin. Beyond that shiny sheet, I heard voices again—the distinctive tones of the store manager, James Reese, and that other voice, that strange low voice. And now that I could hear it a little more clearly— it sounded mouthy, sticky somehow, wet. Reese, from what I could make out, was asking questions, unusual questions that made little sense to me at the time. How did they do it? he asked. What does it feel like? And the strange low voice answered the questions in a squelchy slur. I don't know, it mumbled. I can't describe it. Something horrifying was in motion on the other side of that tarpaulin, something unspeakably dreadful, something unquestionably weird. Thinking back, I heard the words of the dishevelled woman in my mind. It looked at me, spoke to me. I knew I had to take a look, just a peek, mind. Slowly, ever so cautiously, I gripped the edge of the tarpaulin, and gently pulled it aside. What followed will forever be etched upon my brain as something not quite real— a series of ghastly impressions that have haunted my dreams ever since. As I pulled the tarp aside, my attention was drawn to the floor, slick with vinegar, the overhead strip lighting catching my eye. But then, by slow degrees, my line of sight was redirected to the source of the spillage—a vast, gallon-sized pickle jar, the very container the young lady had evidently dropped. It had broken into a number of vast shards— three metres or so from my position at the west end of the aisle. Standing over the remnants, his brogues wrapped in bin liners, was James Reese. The object of his attention still hadn't quite registered with me, for my brain was working overtime trying to reconcile the complete and total lack of pickles. I mean, a gallon-sized pickle jar had been dropped, and other than the vinegar, which had spread across the entirety of the aisle, the pickled vegetables were wholly absent. But all that was required for the true, nauseous horror of the scene to become absolutely clear to me was Reese's next question, which, as must have been the case with his previous line of questioning, was directed at the object upon the floor, the thing that had been inside the pickle jar, the article that had evidently caused that poor young lady to drop the container in the first place. It was a human head, 
a living, talking, human head. And that wasn't the worst of it. It was the baker, Bradley Smith, who had allegedly gone off sick after consuming dodgy turkey mince. There he was, well, his head at least, glistening in a puddle of vinegar, shards of glass surrounding him, fragments embedded in his cheeks. His hair was wet with pickle juice. His face was a sort of greyish-green. His lips were bloated and black, his nose withered to the consistency of a prune. And the poor bugger was still alive. Reese's repeated question made sense now. How did they do it? Someone had done this to Smith, and Reese wanted to get to the bottom of it. Dumbfounded, I was no longer able to maintain my furtiveness, and so I sort of stumbled out into the aisle, my boots sloshing in the vinegar. Reese immediately turned to meet my horrified gaze. I imagine Smith would have turned too, had he still been in possession of a functioning neck. I saw his dark, bloodshot eyes swivel in their sockets. God only knows what those crimson orbs permitted him to see in his present condition. My stumbling gait turned into an awkward, blind meander, and I continued in that fashion, until I was standing beside Reese, looking down upon the decapitated, pickled remains of Adco's finest baker. No effort was made on the part of Reese to prevent my approach, and, without hesitation, he proceeded to lay it all out for me. Apparently, a disgruntled colleague had done away with Smith in the warehouse, the details of which the pickled head of the baker had deemed too diffuse to relate in detail. This colleague, whom Smith had yet to name, had dismembered his body and carefully butchered the various cuts in order to be distributed throughout the store. There was Smith mince in packets among the lamb and turkey mince, corned Smith in plastic tubs alongside the corned beef and chicken paste, Smith pâté in the fridges with the premium duck and pork brands, and frozen Smith portions deep in the depths of the store's plentiful freezers. It seemed that customers had been purchasing these tainted products over the preceding weeks, which explained a hell of a lot with regards to the many complaints of food poisoning. Throughout all this, Reese had continually asked the questions, How is this possible? How are you still alive? To which Smith, in that watery, unbearable voice, had simply answered, Who knows? You know what rubbish they put in our food these days. But Smith had stopped talking, and his bloated lips remained closed. He just looked at me. Those dark, pickled eyes studied me probably as fascinated by the blank, disbelieving expression upon my face as I was the barren, despairing expression upon his. And as Reese and I stood there, gazing down at the strange, pickled head that had survived decapitation and preservation in a gallon-sized jar, Smith closed his eyes, and, God willing, finally found oblivion. Reese summoned the burly guard from the central aisle, and between the three of us, we took down another jar, and performed the grisly task of replacing its contents with the remains of Bradley Smith. A piece of tarp was thrown over it, and the guard rushed off with it in the direction of the control room. Reese looked at me, as if to say, This stays between you and me, and then, quite nonchalantly, followed in the steps of the guard, his liner-wrapped brogues sloshing in the vinegar. Shortly afterwards, as I stood there in a dim daze, Lindsay's apprentices swept in, and did away with the slick of pickle juice. The tops came down, the shards of glass were brushed up, 
and any sign that there had ever been a disturbance was brushed up with them. I returned to work. Smith was never spoken of again. Which brings me to the thorny issue of my resignation. No, the fact that Smith's living head was preserved in a pickle jar is not the reason I chose to resign. There were two other reasons. One, Smith's killer, the disgruntled staff member, is still at large. I mean, it could be anyone. Reese, Lindsay, Pace, Jones, who knows? I certainly don't want to end up preserved indefinitely in a pickle jar for any old bugger to find. Which reminds me, why on earth was that jar placed on aisle 22 in the first place? The whole thing is beyond strange. And reason number two. On one occasion, following the strange event on aisle 22, I happened to poke my head into Reese's office. His door was ajar, and I wanted to discuss my holiday entitlement. Apparently he'd nipped to the toilet or something, and the room was empty. But as I turned to leave, I noticed something in the shadowy recesses of the office, a piece of cloth thrown over an object of a very certain size. I know what's under there, and I think I know why he's keeping it. And that, if reason one wasn't good enough, is the reason I wanted out of ADCO PLC. And if my reasons still aren't good enough, then allow me to quote our presumably deceased pickled baker. You know what rubbish they put in our food these days? <laughs>